Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 170 of the show, and it's Thursday, October the 5th, 2023, as I record this. On today's interview, I have Dr. Brzezemislav Grabowski-Gorniak, who is Assistant Professor at the Institute of English Studies, University of Warsaw. He is also a massive armoured combat person, and I met him when I was in Poland, um, in Warsaw, in fact, in June at the International Rapier Seminar, and we, at the sort of party in the middle of the seminars or in the, on the Saturday evening, we were chatting about armoured combat stuff for a very long time, so I thought I'd better have him on the show. And I'm very glad I did because he's fascinating and also, incidentally, an expert on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Gawain's other adventures. Uh, but mostly he's a massive armoured combat fiend. I'm recording this in the UK early because I'm off to Baltimore next week for Lord Baltimore's Challenge or more strictly Lord Baltimore's College because they sort of rebranded it for this particular event because the format is different. Instead of the usual classes and tournament, we're integrating them so that the tournament environment becomes a much more efficient training opportunity. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the students take to it. It should give them absolutely tons of tournament style experience but rather than you have a whole day of tournament and then you try and figure out when you get home exhausted what you're going to learn from it, um, you have a little bit of tournament and then you do some work on what you have learned in that little bit of tournament. Then you have a bit more tournament and go back to practicing and improving what you've just figured out you need to work on and so on. So hopefully the tournament environment will become a much more useful training environment. The goal of the weekend is to make better fences. Now, I don't think I've mentioned my knee injury on the podcast before. About three years ago, um, on a long country walk, I managed to tear the meniscus of my left knee, which is not funny. It's annoying. Every now and then it flares up. Um, but it's, you know, it's generally manageable and it's certainly not worth get letting butchers hack about with blades anywhere near my knee. I'm quite happy for sword people to hack, you know, fuck about with blades near my knee, but I don't want surgeons doing it, thank you very much. Every now and then it flares up, and it flared up really badly on Friday, but in an unusual way. Instead of it being focused on where the meniscus problem is, it sort of spread to the other side of the knee and to the back of the knee, which is really weird. And it was getting better, but last Friday when I was doing my train along, so it'll be, yes, a week ago as you're listening to this, um, I was doing a you know, we'd had a nice training session and I was just getting my knee back into a little bit of gentle rapier stuff, really s slow, really smooth, really careful. And then suddenly my knee decided, oh shit, this is really bad. And it had a bit of a panic attack. We happened to be videoing that um, session. So there's a video record of the moment that everything went pear-shaped. And I sent this video to my physiotherapist, who I see occasionally for kind of preventive reasons. And... Um, actually, you can see it for yourself if you like. It's on the support sword people section of the swordpeople.com um, social media platform. And the video is 52 minutes and 20 seconds is when everything goes pear-shaped. Now, my physiotherapist looked at it and she figured out that I have a curve in my lower spine, creating a tilt in my pelvis, creating an internal rotation 
of my femur, creating a twist in the knee, so that even though the knee looks dead straight, actually the femur is slightly twisted, and this was causing problems in the knee. It's like, oh fuck, I have been lunging wrong. <laughs> Which is um, really ironic if you think about it, because you know I am Mr. Mechanics and Mr. Tailbone Position Obsessive. Okay, so when Norma, my physio, told me about this, I started laughing like a maniac, and she was a bit like, what the hell? Why, why is this funny? And then I explained that, you know, in my professional field, I'm considered something of a mechanics expert, and here I am with a fundamental error in my lunging mechanics. Now, I was first taught to lunge properly in sport fencing in 1987, and I figured out my capoeira lunge mechanics in 2003 and got that kind of nicely dialed in. And so for about 35 years, my lunging has been fine. But at some point over the last decade or so, I don't know why, but my mechanics have slipped and changed and gen generally kind of adapted themselves into something which is less physical effort, but not good for me. And I didn't notice it happening. So let this be a lesson to you, my friends. Do not ever take your mechanics for granted. Now, now that I know what the problem is, and I've basically fixed it already, my knee is already better. The meniscus tear is still there, um, but the side and back of the knee are fine, and that's only after like a couple of days. So it was also being affected by how I was generally moving around. So the point of bending your ear about this for the last five minutes is if this can happen to me, it can happen to you. So I would strongly recommend that you take a good hard look at your current mechanics and see what may be imperfect. And it's always a good idea to get a professional eye on such things. I mean, I couldn't spot the problem in the video because I'm looking at myself and one never sees oneself clearly even on video. So it took Norma pointing it out for me to actually be able to see it. And after I, she, she showed it to me and I could see it, it was absolutely bloody obvious. Do check your mechanics, especially with more extreme actions like lunging, and do look after your knees. <laughs> you know, I have a fucking knee maintenance course. Why? Because I actually need it. Okay, on the writing side of things, I have finally got some momentum back on my Armitsari workbook part two. People who have bought and loved the first one have been waiting now for about two years for the next one, which is ridiculous because I have the next one already planned out before I published the first one. Um, it's not even close to done. It's about maybe 15% into the first draft, but that's an awful lot better than a week ago when I had just the outline, which have been the same for the last two years. I don't know what kickstarted this. I've been keeping the word processing file open for about a fortnight. Um, and when I was going through some upcoming projects with my assistant Katie, because she does a lot of the actual implementation of things like uploading stuff to places and getting making sure the covers fit the books and that kind of thing. Um, so we were going through these projects with Katie and I was like, oh God, this bloody Amitari workbook, is, I can't do anything with it, it's just useless. And then that afternoon, without even really intending to, I churned out about half of the first section. There are nine sections, so that's a significant chunk of the book. Now, as for the rest of the projects, my How to Write Training Manuals book is now called from Your Head to Their Hands, How to Write, Publish, and Market Training Manuals for Historical Martial Artists. It's done, including the resources pages and all the links and everything. It's back from the professional editor and it is ready to go. It just needs its cover, which I have commissioned, and when that's here, we will publish the book. Hopefully, 
by the end of October, but I do not rush my cover designer. I do not rush any of my freelancers because rushed work is unpleasant for everyone. So this, um, this book also includes a standalone article, Show Your Work, How to Communicate Your Historical Martial Arts Research with the Historical Martial Arts Community, snappy subtitle or what, and I'll be putting that out for free because I think it would be a really useful thing for the researchers out there who are pushing our field along with their transcriptions, translations or interpretations. And this will just give them, okay, if you don't want to have to think too hard about how you're going to present the work, this will just give you a model to follow, which should save these people who are doing such good work for us. It should make their lives just a bit easier. So that's going to be coming out for free when From Your Head to Their Hands is ready. Speaking of academic stuff, from medieval manuscript and modern practice, the wrestling techniques of Fiore de Liberi is done to the point that it's ready to go to my editor. There are one or two non-Fiore images to scare up and no doubt some bits and pieces to fix, but the complete draft is there, edited to the best of my ability, and all the video clips, etc. are edited, uploaded and ready to go. The editor will take a look next month. He's a busy man. Um, so the ETA is probably January, maybe February, because he needs to come back from the editor, I'll apply the edits, send it off to layout, layout will happen, cover design will happen, it'll all get put together, and maybe January, February next year. Speaking of Fiore translation, I am working my way through the dagger section at the moment, transcribing it and translating it, and I'm currently on the fifth master, so I'm a bit over halfway through. This is in preparation for the next From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice volume, which will be on the dagger, I think. I'll just have the armoured combat on foot section left to do, so sword and armour, poleaxe and spear, and then I've got the whole Getty manuscript transcribed and translated. So yes, I am planning a volume on the armoured combat stuff in conjunction with Przemyslav. Our plan is to get together in maybe April and shoot all of that material. Um, and I've got them... I'm also planning a volume on the mounted combat section with another podcast guest. I'm not saying who at the moment. You can probably have some informed guesses. The order of publication may vary, but I should have the whole of Fiori's treatise given the whole from medieval manuscript to modern practice treatment by the end of 2025. So that is image from the treatise, um, transcription, translation, commentary, and video clip for the entire manuscript, plus sort of you know, diversions into the Bizarre manuscript and other places. So... Transcription and translation is tricky, but it doesn't require a great deal of creative inspiration. So I can just show up and work on it for a little bit. And then oh, there's another thousand words of first draft text. Okay, Because I'm basically just copying Fiore. I'm literally typing out what he wrote and then translating it into English paragraph by paragraph. And I mean, it's not always easy. Um, sometimes he uses odd constructions. Sometimes the handwriting is a pest. Um, but it's it's a kind of procedural thing I can just show up and get on with the next bit and uh, I can do like 10 minutes here 10 minutes there or an hour here an hour there um, and I don't really have to th- kind of get into a creative zone to do it so it's a, it's a useful sort of thing to kind of keep ticking away in the background now the Lichtenau Longsword course with Jessica Finley so it's basically her course um, I am planning to edit this when I get back from the States so it should be ready in November We haven't yet decided exactly how we're going to publish it, but don't worry, I will keep you posted. And it is coming probably before Christmas. I would hope November. It kind of depends on decisions that Jessica and I are going to make in the next week or so. Now, I also have a top secret project, which I'm not going to give you any details about, but Katie is doing most of the work on it. 
and it should be ready before Christmas and it's going to be fun and useful and pretty and not too serious. But it is completely top secret. So I can't give you any more details. Just know that there's a secret project in the works. Ah, yes, as my younger daughter will happily tell you, really, I'm about five years old. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Pushemislav Gravolsky Gorniak. And yes, I did practice that name for a little while before we recorded. <laughs> uh, who is an assistant professor at the Institute of English Studies at the University of Warsaw. His research focuses on the chivalric tradition of the late Middle Ages, be it chivalric romances or medieval manuscripts and treatises on the art of war, with a special focus on the English literary portrayals of Sir Gawain in the period of the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses. His admiration for the Middle Ages goes beyond academia, as he is also a historical reenactor and a harness fecking instructor, combining his knowledge of the period as well as his experience in working with medieval manuscripts with a practical approach in order to reconstruct martial techniques of the 14th and 15th centuries. His current focus is on studying the traces of medieval English martial systems in the pages of the Middle English romances. And that's a hell of an introduction. So, <laughs> lovely to see you again. Great to see you. Um, just to orient everyone, they've probably guessed you're in Poland, but whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, Poland, uh, Warsaw, to be specific. And are you from Warsaw? Yes. I so. was born in Warsaw, I live in Warsaw, and I work in Warsaw. <laughs> Excellent. So you know your way around. So it's no wonder that we met in Warsaw then. <laughs> no wonder, yeah. Uh, so how did you get into historical martial arts? Ooh, uh, the, the, there are two parts to that story, really. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, one thing is my grandfather, who was the man uh, in my life, uh, the, the, the one who really uh, set the standard for, for what I'm doing now, he was a huge fan of history. And he would uh, read to me uh, stories, novels, books. I, I remember uh, as if it were yesterday, him reading to me the Teutonic Knights. It, it's one of the, the greatest, most uh, uh, celebrated works by Henrik Sienkiewicz, who uh, got a, a Nobel Prize in literature for another work. But, you know, the Teutonic Knights uh, is a story of the struggle between uh, the, the Polish uh, kingdom and Władysław Jagiełło uh, with the Teutonic Order. And it, it is a hugely important work for Poland because it was created uh, when Poland was um, under the influence of foreign power powers, including Germany. Uh, okay. And it was a, a form of a low-key low um, um, sign of resistance on the right. side of Henryk Sienkiewicz. And then uh, it was uh, used by the communist government uh, in Poland when they made it into a movie uh, in the 50s to, to kind of... Uh, follow up with the narrative of uh, anti-Germanic sentiments and, you know, pan-Slavism and so on. So uh, I was uh, spoon-fed history right. <laughs> by my grandfather. 
Uh, and the other side of the story is most men in my family uh, are some in some way related to the military profession. So yeah. my uncles, my father, the, the the men in my family would be uh, soldiers. They would work in, in uh, homeland security and, and so on. Uh, I was the one who decided to go into the uh, academia, but nonetheless, I was pushed towards uh, martial arts ever since I was a little boy. And uh, I have trained, as it usually happened in the uh, 90s, I trained the Eastern martial arts, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Japanese Koryubujitsu uh, stuff, but in high school, I met a guy who was a man, member of a reenactment group, and he told me that uh, they are meeting, uh, you know, the fields of Grunwald, which was which was this site of of the greatest military victory uh, of, of Poland in the 15th century. And he told me they are putting on armor and fighting with steel weapons that he is actually spending his free time hitting people with an axe on on right. the helmet. So and so Grunwald to the Poles is maybe like Agincourt to the English. Absolutely. Right. Yes. It's okay, even that, that puts it into perspective. the same moment. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh so And of course Agincourt is actually in France. Um but you actually have Grunwald in Poland yes, itself. It's, so it's, it's very much in Poland. Even more yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but the name itself uh, is uh, somehow ties to the fact that the, the, those lands were under the control of the Teutonic Order, which was, you know, a Germanic, uh, German uh, knightly order, because Grunwald is not a Polish name. Right. And, and so the Teutonic Knights are basically the bad guys. Yes. Yes. And, and the righteous Polish Knights are the good guys who go and defeat them. That's right, exactly. Right, okay. I, I've, I've got to get my white hat, black hat thing uh -huh. right, otherwise I could I could make some faux pas, which would alienate all the Polish listeners. <laughs> the long story short is uh, one of uh, the princes of Poland allowed mm -hmm. the Teutonic Order to come to Poland and uh, gave them uh, an estate uh, mm -hmm. so that they could launch uh, crusades against Lithuania and uh, the... Slavic nations on the eastern border of Poland, but uh, they liked it the, so much that they started, they, they coveted more, and they were right. uh, increasing their influence on on the lands around their main seat, which was Malborg, and uh, at some point, Władysław Jagiełło, who was uh, the king of Poland during that time, uh, he decided to uh, face them down in a battle, and that was the battle of, of Grunwald, uh, 1410. So, as I okay. said, quite close to, to Agincourt. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and it is a kind of a symbolic victory of, of you know, Polishness against the encroaching right. power of, of Germanization, which was used to, to a large extent uh, during the 20th century, where uh, the Poland had problems with other foreign powers taking away and uh, usurping the the territory. Uh, yeah, I mean, Britain entered the Second World War because Germany invaded Poland. Yes. And, and we had a deal. 
<laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, when I heard from this guy at school that he's doing all those things, I decided I have to get in on that. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I, I, before that, I trained uh, Kenjitsu. Uh, and yeah, we trained with, with wooden swords, uh, with Bokken, and we would hit one another, but the, the image of a mass battle between guys in armor go, going full swing with metal weapons, that was just a dream come true. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's how I got into reenactment. Uh, then uh, a new fad came around, the uh, Bohurt or Buhurt, and uh, as it is more known in the West. And I immediately went in because uh, that seemed even a better fun uh, than the normal battlefield reenactment. And okay. uh, that. Also, at some point, uh, lost its appeal, and I found my way into Hima, which is currently the source of all the enjoyment in my life. <laughs> okay, so you started that with sort of classic reenactment. Yes. Went into Boho, and I mean, listeners to the show should know what Boho is because I've interviewed two quite high-level Boho people, Dana Bergen Wyman, I think. Um, and Beth Hammer, and I'll put links to those in the show notes so that people can find them. Um, and now you're doing like the more historical recreation of martial techniques as opposed to the competitive book or, or the performative reenactment. Yes, fair? absolutely. Uh, nowadays, uh, nowadays uh, I'm hardcore into Harnischfechten. Okay. So I'm digging deep into the defensing treatises and, and really working with that order. What are your main um, sources? What, 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 mm -hmm. what sources do you use primarily? So, uh, uh, Fior di Battaglia, uh, Gladiatoria, mm -hmm. uh, Talhofer's Fechtbücher, and uh, to a smaller extent, uh, Paulus Hector Mayer. Okay. And obviously, Fiori is the best of those, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to to an extent, I would agree with okay. you. Unfortunately, the, the problem with Fiore is he doesn't really devote much space to Harnischfechten yeah. uh, in, in his fight book. However, Yeah, you're, you're supposed to read the whole book. You're supposed yes. to do the whole thing. And a lot of the stuff that you do in armor is actually in the other bits. In yeah. the other sections of the book, so so uh, I absolutely adore Fiore, uh, but uh, I use Gladiatoria as a kind kind of a supplement to to Fiore, really, because mm -hmm. uh, as you uh, surely remember at the very beginning in the introduction to the Flower of Battle, he actually says that uh, he learned the uh, wonderful art of of combat from numerous masters, Italian and German. That's right, and yeah. and he also uh, among his students had uh, German students. Mm -hmm. So uh, I thought to myself that you know, given the fact that between the Fiordi Battaglia and the earliest known version of Gladiatoria, that there's around twenty years, uh, it's it's impossible to think that the techniques represented in Gladiatoria are in no way, shape, or form similar to what Fiore oh. was studying. 
Yeah, so, I mean, my 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 feeling is that basically all of the differences we find in the medieval systems, if you want to call them systems, is almost invariably in the unarmored stuff. Yeah, and there's and basically if you looked at just the armored combat, you we and you ha- you didn't know where the sources were from, you would probably say, oh, it's all the same thing. It's all from the same school. I mean, it's, it's, there isn't a lot to choose between it. There are certain instances where you see differences that were uh, most likely dictated by the differences in uh, armor used. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at some point you can see that certain techniques are, are either phased out or they change slightly. I think the, the best example here is in Gladiatoria you have a couple of techniques where you aim Mordschlag, so uh, hitting the opponent with the pommel or the crossguard of a sword held by the blade, you uh, hit them to the sides of the joints. So uh, you either go uh, for a cutter, so the, the, the cover of your elbow, or, or to the polains, so the cover of the knee. Uh, but then Talhofer uses similar t- techniques, but instead of uh, advising a hit, he uh, goes for a hook. Yeah. So you you go deeper, you hook the crossguard behind the knee uh, of the opponent, and you then try to topple them. So you can see how, uh, most likely, the development of the armor used during Talhofer's time made it uh, less likely to, to, to actually inflict uh, any... Ah. Any, uh, any serious injury on, on the opponent. Because, uh, what I found is, when you consider Gladiatoria, uh, the, the, the first manuscript is dated to around 1430s. And if you look at the styles of armor that were popular in Germany during that time, uh, especially the Kastenbrust, uh, style, uh, that you can see in the paintings of Konrad Witz, for instance, and there's a brilliant effigy of Friedrich von Niepenburg, uh, dated 1435, that represents the, the, the complete style of Kastenbrust. And what was quite popular during that time was uh, an assembly of uh, Kutter and um, Polains that had a single... Uh, plate rondel that was riveted with a single rivet to the side of the elbow or to the side of the knee. So my uh, original idea is, uh, given the fact that that was probably uh, the popular uh, type of defense that Gladiatoria was created uh, for, hitting someone in onto a plate held by a single rivet with a powerful stroke or, or pow- powerful hit, uh, the, the like of Mordschlag, was very likely to either damage or completely shear off the, the defense of, of, the, um, uh, of the joint. Uh, right. But then when you look at Talhofer's manuscript, uh, you have both the elbows and the knees uh, made... Uh, with uh, a a plate that is encapsulating uh the the the, the entire part, part of either the knee or the elbow so hitting on the side and we tried it we tried <laughs> it, it with with 
three uh, three different types of armor with Italian, with German, and with uh, Italian expert. And we really hit them very hard with metal swords using Morschlag. Nothing happened. So to to that extent, I think Talhofer was conscious of the uh, earlier technique and just thought to himself. You know, it's it's a good idea. I can still go into the uh, the knee, but I can't damage the armor in that way. It's better to hook the the opponent and to topple the uh, topple him and, for instance, mount him or 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 do something else than to try to to hit uh, a well armored part with with my sword. Right. So basically, the change in the technique is driven by improvements in the armor. Yes, and that's something and, you, you can see a lot. And Fioris is the oldest of these sources, so one would expect his armor is the least technologically developed. Is that uh, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, because he, we can't forget that Fiore was uh, using uh, Italian armor as okay. his basis. And Italian armor is obviously a certain shorthand, but Italian armor was much more protective than German armor, uh, oftentimes. So if we consider the armor of the early 15th century used in Italy, you would never find uh, the, the, the same uh, ideas that you find in German armor. Uh, the, even when you look at the illustrations uh, accompanying techniques of the Flower of Battle, uh, the the um, protection of the upper and lower uh, lower limbs is much more complete than what you can see in many Kastenbrust sty- styles. So even though okay. it it was earlier, it was more protective. Because Italian armor is better than German armor, and that's just a fact. Sure, I, I, I can't I can't argue with that. <laughs> okay, but here's a question then. Mm-hmm. Like, um, should we say the culture of chivalry, like the chivalric classes in Europe, mm-hmm. they pretty much knew each other and they communicated with each other all the time. And there are examples of like a king in Portugal ordering armor from an armor in Germany. Yes. Right. So the question is, if Say in 1400, Italian armor was dramatically better than German armor. Why aren't the Germans ordering Italian armor? Uh, they are. Everyone is okay. ordering uh, Italian armor. Okay. But that doesn't mean that everyone is. So uh, okay. you have people from around Europe uh, ordering Italian armor because Italians, especially in the 15th century, they started dominating uh, the the armor game. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot that goes into uh, into that, but long story short, they were capable of producing uh, the most armor uh, at the lowest price. So. Okay. Uh, the, Toby Capwell writes about it in the third book on the English armor. Uh, yeah. And he says, yeah, sure, um, English armor was great and uh, and it was uh, very distinct, but it was also incredibly expensive in comparison to Italian armor. Right. So uh, the thing is, uh, yes, you would most definitely see people in Germany using Italian armor, or it, uh, rather Italian-made armor, because we right. know that Italians had uh, this alla tedesca uh, type of armor that was made 
for people from 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 Germany. Uh, and, they, they and sorry, a, did, did that have the same sort of technological superiority as the German style armor? But if it's made in the same style, surely it would be equally protective to armor made in Germany of the same style. This, and well, no, what, no. what you're describing about the knee joint is mm-hmm. a difference in the design of the knee joint yes. that's making the difference to protectiveness. Yes, so it so would be the, more protective. Okay, but if they're making it in the German style, wouldn't they be copying the German design? Uh, not really. Uh, in okay. the German style was more stylistic. So, for instance, uh, you would see um, uh, the use of salads instead of armets in in the yeah. German style, uh, or you would see uh, the use of spalders uh, of equal size instead of uh, asymmetrical pauldrons, like in uh, Italian style, or you would see more fluting in in later stages. So it was stylistic, uh, however, it followed the the basic ideas and designs of the of the Italian armor. I think that the best known example is the the armor of Frederick the Victorious, well known with with grand bassinet and and uh, equal size spalders. Uh, but okay, well, we'll we'll put a picture of that in the show notes for people who can't just conjure up a precise <laughs> image of that particular armor. <laughs> what I think we should remember is uh, many people nowadays have this false. Uh, uh, false idea about armor because they we we are conditioned to think in terms of modern production where you uh go to a store and you have a, a number of set models that are mass produced and you could you, you just choose from around those whereas uh in the middle ages uh what you chose was very much up to your wealth, but also your personal choices. Uh, very often, they had ideas that were failed. Like uh, I, I'm sure you know uh, about this short-lived fad, especially in Germany, where they had chains uh, that were attaching weapons and helmets to the breastplate. And you have a very short period of time where FEGs and, and art of the time show a knight who has a sword on a chain, a helmet on a chain, a dagger on a chain, all of it dangling from <laughs> yeah. his chest. What, what was that? What was that? What was that about? Uh, I think the, the idea here was not to lose your weapons in the heat of battle. Uh, so if you, so if you drop it, you could just yes. pull on the chain and. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. But, you know, uh, as a practitioner of, of martial arts, you can surely imagine that the first thing that comes to your mind when fighting against someone like that is, why don't I just grab the chain and yank it? Pull, pull it, exactly, yes. yes. <laughs> You're basically giving your opponent all sorts of handles That's right. and throttling devices. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine how horribly cumbersome that would be in wrestling. And we know that Harry Schwechten to a very large degree is wrestling. Yeah. Most plays end up with you struggling on the ground with the other guy playing the game of who gets to the dagger first. Right. And, and, you know, armor works. So anything I can do with a sword from like normal striking distance is isn't going to do anything to somebody wearing armor. I mean, it might scratch the 
mm-hmm. their helmet, uh, but it's not going to do very I mean, much. Yes and no. Uh, okay. Because once again, uh, we have to remember that people who are wearing armor weren't always w- wearing the best type of armor available. Sure. So, uh, if you think about common soldiers or even men at uh, uh, arms who didn't have the full protection or, or chose not to have full protection, because still in the 15th century you can see, for instance, people who have uh, full uh, uh, braces, so so the full coverage of the arm, but the uh, shoulders are only covered with mail. So right. here, here you can imagine that a, a really solid strike to your shoulder with a sword. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt and it can actually break something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna cut through, but you might no, break no, the no. clavicle. But, but the blunt trauma, especially yeah. if you use something like the murder stroke. Right. So, uh, okay. I think that we need to remember also, you know, uh, you have kettle hats. A very popular k- type of helmet, uh, but if you get cut in the face while wearing right. a kettle hat, that's the really... counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, also, also, you have depictions of people going into battle, for instance, without gauntlets. So all the strikes to the to the hands still mm-hmm. count. You have uh, very often foot soldiers. Uh, honestly, I I lost fingernails while wearing gauntlets. Yes. So, I mean, you're not going to get your fingers cut off very easily, but you can no, no. certainly get a finger broken through a gauntlet. Absolutely. Absolutely. With a powerful strike. Uh, yeah. And the last thing we have to remember also is uh, the quality of armor varies right. horribly. So if you had a very well-made sword hitting a very shoddy male, then it could go through. Sure. And Fiore has a, a bit in the polax section where he claims to be able to put the point of the polax through a breastplate, right? Mm-hmm. And writing in about 1400, there's about a 50-50 chance that that breastplate was made out of iron rather than steel. And so, actually, you can do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- there was this, this brilliant uh, two-parter made by Toby Capwell and uh, Todd from Todd's, Todd's Workshop, mm-hmm. where they were shooting um, uh, recreations of 15th century armor with uh, a longbow. Right. Uh, to, to kind of test the, the limits. And uh, in that, they tested two different breastplates. But uh, they still recognize the fact that the first one was, you know, the higher end available. And even right. the second one was kind of upper mid-tier. Yeah. But we have Cheaper. to remember... <laughs> yes. But we have to remember that there were still people uh, who couldn't afford this level of protection. Sure. Plus, even if you have a breastplate, the breastplate is actually only covering you from... Uh, your neck to your navel. But below that, very often people would just have an arming jack uh, or, or right. a male skirt. And uh, even if your polex doesn't go through uh, the, the breastplate, it can slide to the side or down yeah. and, and it will sure as hell go through mail. We also tested that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, okay, so... Um, why were the Italians able to make such high-quality armor so cheaply? 
uh, because you had a number of families who were given spe special dispensations, special rights. Uh, they were, for instance, owners of the mines from which they would get ore. Uh, and to, to some extent, they would have um, something close to monopoly. Right. Uh, so, so monopoly and vertical integration. Yes. Right. Uh, plus, when you think of, for instance, England... Uh, some uh, of those makers would, for instance, uh, have special treatment. They they wouldn't be forced to to pay additional taxes. Right. Uh, they they would be able to uh, move their armor quickly to England without any extra costs. So uh, and you know their their workshops were just amazingly big. Uh, in right. comparison to to what English armorers could make. Right, so, so they had a, a big, well-organized organization Absolutely. With, with vertical integration between like, yes. the ore production and the smelting and the, the sort of rough work and then the finisher. So they, they owned the whole process and they got tax breaks. Yes. So they could, ah, exactly. okay, interesting. How very, <laughs> <laughs> How very modern. How very modern. Okay, so the, what, what, Obviously, you're you're mad about Middle Ages. You're mad about armor, and there is a ton of material in Europe on on that subject. What drew you to the English chivalric literature? Well, uh, the the big thing about England is I absolutely love it. <laughs> really? I was yes, yes. But that always I surprises was, me when I hear that. <laughs> I was always enamored with England, with English literature, with uh, especially English Middle Ages. Okay. Uh, I adore Edward III and his son <laughs> Edward of Woodstock. Uh, I why? Uh, I think that the the way in which they manage to translate the uh, romantic ideas of chivalry into uh, a well organized system that produced uh, knights and men at arms capable of uh, showing up a, a much more numerous French army right. and uh, the the you know the, the the whole idea of the order of the garter uh, of how they managed to create this uh, amazing industry wherein uh uh, in the latter part of the 14th century and throughout the 15th century, we talk about something called the English alliterative revival, where you have a whole lot of uh, English chivalric romances in alliterative verse, which, you know, it's something we can uh, look back for and to be of. And they were creating this uh, huge drive uh, in the artistic expression of of uh, of the English, to uh, create stories that had a, a real life influence not only on people within the military uh, profession but also regular people. Uh, Thomas Hahn um, he wrote an, an incredibly interesting introduction to into. Uh, a book uh, that is a collection of, of uh, chivalric romances featuring uh, Sir Gawain. And he said that even during the Tudor era, you can see uh, in the inventories and wills of uh, wealthy merchants that they actually had books 
of of those chivalric romances on their shelves. So wow. it, something that was started uh, during the reign of Edward III uh, was the the leading a cultural note that permeated throughout the rule of Plantagenets and still managed to grasp the imagination of people during the Tudor era. And I I think just that's, that's just stunning. amazing. Yes. Yeah, I, I hadn't I hadn't quite realized that. So so basically they were writing these stories which became um like the mythos of the knightly ideal. Yes, yes, and, yes. Which and persisted for centuries. Absolutely. And Edward okay. III, he actually had his group of knights that he would meet with uh, annually. Uh, and they kind of play-acted the the knights of the round table. Uh, so that was kind of connected to the Order of the Garter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea behind it was to create a kind of elite club for right. the uh, foremost of English knights who would espouse the virtues and values of the Arthurian mode of chivalry that Edward was so fond of. And you can imagine how something like that was a huge influence on the young members of the Order of Chivalry, because right. you know that there is this club for the best of the best and they meet with the king uh, annually on the day of Saint George who is not only the patron saint of England but also the patron saint of chivalry itself (laughs) so uh, in in that regard uh, it was a brilliant PR move and it worked so brilliantly well that we know that the king of France wanted something like that and and he actually tasked one of his uh, greatest uh, knights, uh, Geoffrey de Charny, with creation of the Order of the Star, which was a copy, straight up copy of the idea <laughs> of the English Love Order it. of the Garter. And uh, what's what's interesting is we have uh, um, Le, Liv- Le Livre Charny and uh, um, Le Livre Chivalry, I think it's called. So we have a book uh, written by Geoffrey de Charny, which is kind of a manual on how to be a good knight. And we know that it was a manual created for something that was a copy of the English original. Wow. Uh, so one, one question occurs to me. Mm-hmm. Edward III was obviously massively taken with the Arthurian legends. Absolutely. So what version of those legends was he exposed to? Uh, Do we know? We don't know what exact version, because we have to remember that the Arthurian uh, legends would be something very much alive and a part of the lived experience of people in the 14th and 15th century. So uh, it's not even that that he read any particular version. Uh, We have to realize that during some feasts, parties, tournaments, uh, he would have uh, tripodeurs, poets, uh, entertainers reciting those stories. Right. So they have the same sort of um, sort of generational power as like fairy tales or nursery rhymes. Absolutely, yes. Right. Okay. Uh, And we know that 
it was still popular during the reign of Elizabeth the first. People yeah. still and but were very much entertained with with the stories of Arthur and his knight, and obviously we know that Henry the Eighth was uh, bonkers about chivalry, <laughs> uh, and I think that it it really all started as I said with the efforts of of Edward the Third and, and how he wanted to incorporate all those brilliant ideas into his mode of of kingship. And I think he really did something with how amazingly his son, Edward of Woodstock, was represented in the English sources, but he was also quite respected and feared by the French. Uh, so right. that, that, that's something that, that was a huge inspiration in me, and uh, I was absolutely fascinated with it as a and kid. It, it reminds me a little bit of the sort of hero worship that, like, Navy SEALs and SAS and stuff get these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it, where you have this sort of elite group mm-hmm. that are... Um, all sorts of stories get told about them, not all of which are true. And you get people pretending to have been in mm-hmm. such groups who actually weren't. And, and yeah, and also some of the things that they, they managed to pull off are, are just astonishing. So, so you have... There's a bit of fact, there's a bit of fiction, but most importantly, there's a whole lot of myth. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, to, to, to some extent, I'm sure there was some, you know, PR movement <laughs> and propaganda uh, on the on the part of the Plantagenets. But on the other hand, you know, there are certain things that are verifiable, like right. uh, Edward of Woodstock was 16 when he uh, fought in the Battle of, uh, of Cressy. And we know that he actually led a contingent of right. of uh, uh, dismounted knights. Uh, th- there is a story, a brilliant story, uh, kind of an anecdote that Frossard, uh tells about how one of the knights from from his side uh, ran to Edward the Third to tell him that they are severely pressed by the French and there's a huge uh, group of French knights assailing them and, and that uh, a young Edward, a 16-year-old boy, is there in the thick of battle and Edward says that he won't send any uh, uh, any um, uh, any more fighters because he wants the boy to win his spurs. Wow, <laughs> That's, that is hardcore parenting. <laughs> <laughs> we know that that uh, uh, Edward was knighted at the beginning of the campaign. Uh, obviously, he had to be because you, you can't imagine a squire leading a group yeah. of knights. But uh, you could imagine that you know uh, Edward through that wanted to showcase, even if it didn't really happen, right? But there is a reason why uh, the story got recorded. So probably he just didn't want it to be seen as an act of nepotism. Uh, And instead, uh, I see... Uh, Edward of Woodstock as his little pet project, right? He he wanted mm. his his little perfect knight, and he wanted to show. Yes, I gave him the distinction, right? I I knighted him, but then he actually had to prove that he's worthy of yeah, that, or die trying. Right. Yeah. And, that's, <laughs> that 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 puts exam pressure placed on 
my my 16 year old daughter into some pretty sharp relief <laughs> i actually used that story a number of times uh when teaching high school students <laughs> when they said you know that it's so hard with the exams and so on and i said Listen, well, Edward <laughs> won his first military victory at your yeah. age. <laughs> and when, right. when and he, he would have had good to... armor and he yeah. would have had good knights around him. Absolutely. But absolutely. he absolutely could have got a yes. spear through the face. No problem. Yes. Uh, I mean, let's just think about uh, Henry of Bolingbroke uh, before he became Henry V. Uh, he got hit in the face with an arrow uh, in the in the Battle of Shrewsbury. The, there is a, the, the whole brilliant story of how the um, uh, king's physician had to create a special pair of pliers to remove the arrowhead from the face of the young prince. So the, the danger was always there. You could have the best armor your money could buy, but... Not to look uh, f- further from from England, Richard III, I'm sure, as the king of England, had the very best armor you could get, and yet he was butchered. Yeah, and buried under a car park. Well, it yeah. wasn't a car park <laughs> then. But <laughs> um, okay, so why Gawain in particular? What draws you to... Mm-hmm. So, Gawain. So, uh, in my studies, I have noticed that uh, Gawain was uh, a pop cultural icon for the English. Uh, okay. Whereas the French adored Sir Lancelot, uh, the, the Germans uh, were more interested in Parsifal. Uh, Gawain was most definitely the English knight. And okay. I think the the best proof of that is the the sheer number of uh, chivalric romances surviving from England that focus on Sir Gawain. Uh, and uh, I think there's a reason for that because Gawain, to my mind, he represents the performative mode of chivalry. He is okay. the guy who does the fighting, right? Because Lancelot, he is this romanticized lover knight. You have Galahad, who is the Miles Christi. He is the defender of faith. He he is the soldier of Christ. But Gawain is the guy who gets things done. And one of the most significant things about Gawain is in most of his outings, he's fighting someone. And very often, he's fighting in formalized uh, modes of combat. So judicial duels, for instance. Mm -hmm. And he does so either in his own name or very often as a champion of King Arthur. Uh, I'm sure that people who are not, you know, very much into medieval literature still recognize uh, the little romance um, called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yeah, everyone's heard of it, and and there's even a movie about it now. Uh, there's a number of movies. None of them is good. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the really new one you, you've seen that. Uh, yes, I. I, I, I you I, hated it. I hate it. Oh, thank God. Okay, I know so many medievalists who absolutely fucking loved it, and I no, was bored, I rigid. I detest it. Okay, why? Uh because I think it's completely missing the point of the original romance. Okay. 
making it into this kind of, you know, unrealistic dream vision-like thing slash, you know, bad trip. It's, yeah. it's completely not what it's supposed to be. Uh, it's, I think, above all, this is actually a teachable uh, piece of writing. And that's also why I think Gawain is very noteworthy, because very often stories that focus on him teach lessons. Teach lessons mm -hmm. in proper behavior, in proper conduct in battle. And you might recall that the the very beginning of the uh, uh, romance of, by, of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Green Knight comes into Camelot, and he first he wants to challenge Arthur, right? Yeah. But it's Sir Gawain who says, no, 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 I, I will go uh, in your place because, you know, I'm not that important. Right. And there are so many stories with Sir Gawain doing the exact same thing. Someone coming to challenge Arthur and Gawain, uh, of his own volition, deciding to represent the king. Yeah. So he is uh, the, the epitome of loyalty, of this bond between the king and uh, the warrior knight, the defender yeah. of crown. Uh, and even... Sir Thomas Mallory, who was very obviously influenced by the French romances instead <laughs> of the English, because he yes. favors Lancelot deeply, he still has certain traces of the real Gawain. Because we know French didn't like Gawain, also the monks didn't like Gawain. Uh, the reason for it is something uh, I, I will mention in a moment, but even uh, uh, Sir Thomas Mallory has certain glimpses of the original Gawain, and uh, uh, one of the first times is when Gawain is uh, engaged in a duel against Sir Morholt. He's known as, as the guy, you know, fighting against Tristan. So uh, they, they fight, and uh, uh, Sir Gawain is unhorsed, and Morholt wants to uh, keep on fighting from horseback. And Gawain says uh, to him, well, you can't do that. It's not how you do things. If you are fighting a formal duel against someone and you unhorse them, you have to continue fighting on foot. And if you don't do that, you risk harming your, your horse. It's absolutely atrocious. And what's in in interesting is Morholt apologizes to him, gets off his horse... And says, thank you for reminding me that the proper conduct. Wow. Right? Thank you for the lesson. Yeah. And uh, th that's why I think that you have the whole story of you know, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where he is tested basically on his loyalty to his host, on his proper behavior, on his gallantry, on his chivalry. And uh, he is deeply ashamed when he cheats. Mm -hmm. And... What is interesting is that the very last uh, uh, sentence that goes uh, in the original manuscript is the very motto of the Order of the Garter. Right. So let's be so ashamed who sees wrong in that. Right. Yeah. So to that extent, I think that if you want to understand the thought world of the English knights, Sir Gawain is the is the best. Uh, entry into that. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to say is uh, I really enjoy Sir Gawain because I think of him as kind of a medieval James Bond. 
Uh, <laughs> okay. He he very often you know gets things done and gets the girl. Right. In the in the chivalric romances featuring Sir Gawain, you know you have Lancelot pining after Guinevere, and uh, you know other guys like Tristan dying for love, but not Gawain. Gawain has a new girl in in <laughs> virtually every story. There's <laughs> there's an entire cycle of romances that are basically about how Gawain is such a ladies' man that he needs to be taught a lesson. <laughs> there's, there's, there's too much womanizing going around. So you can imagine how, for English knights, he was probably their favorite character, right? He, he's yeah, the course. knight's knight, right? Yeah, like exactly. This, this butch... Guy who just like he loves fighting, he loves the ladies, he loves the attention, and he uses every opportunity to show everyone that he is the best at what he is doing. Right. Okay. So and that's probably why the church didn't like him so much. No, no, no. They detested him absolutely. Okay. Uh, so their favorite would be probably Galahad or yes, Tristan. Yes, that's right. Okay. And I Tristan not so much because you know the whole thing with. King Mark and, and you know sleeping with his wife. They they. Oh, yeah, you But then there's an awful lot of adultery in the Arthurian romances. That that is correct, but that's the French edition, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the English they had the proper approach to chivalric romance, right? Fighting, adventures, conquering, going on a quest. None of this lovey-dovey, uh, you know, chasing right. after someone else's girl stuff. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> okay. So, how, how useful are these romances in, to a historical martial arts person, someone who wants to learn more about armor combat itself? Uh, some are completely useless, like Sir Thomas Mallory, <laughs> to a large okay. extent, because uh, we have to realize that many of those were either written by people who probably never saw combat in their life, mm. or were very much generic. So they were repeating the same types of standardized uh, descriptions over and over again. And yet, right. you have a number of, of brilliant English, Middle English uh, romances. Uh, a good example is, for instance, The Knightly Tale of Gologras and Gawain, uh, where you have very detailed descriptions of armed combat. You have descriptions of mass battles, you have descriptions of formal deeds of arms, and it's literally blow by blow. It almost okay. reads like a fencing treatise because you know you have he, this one dis delivered a sword stroke to this part and the other uh, covered on high and deflected and and cleft him on this part of his armor and in doing so he sheared fifty of his mail rings and you have a, a, an right. entire brilliant description with uh, the, the entire index of armor parts that are being targeted and destroyed in the course of battle. You have descriptions of the exact uh, types of attacks that are being delivered between the knights. So mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, as we all know, unfortunately, there are no originally English uh, fencing treatises from the 14th to the 15th century surviving, right? We we don't right. have uh, English Fioretal Hofer or, or yeah, or we haven't found them yet. Yeah, or we haven't haven't found them. But my deep belief is that if you look at uh, the sort of entertainment that was created for the benefit of the military class, of the of the warrior class, and you wanted them to enjoy those. And we know, as I said, that the English absolutely loved those stories that focused on the military exploits. Right. Uh, you you can't defend a, a an argument saying. Uh, I think that those very detailed, amazingly intricate descriptions of armed combat are just, you know, pure imagination of the author. Right. It's like, okay, I am the worst person in the world to go watch a sword fighting movie with, unless, of course, (laughs) you come too. I think we'd be terrible. And, you know, I saw The Knight's Tale sat between J.T. Palika, who's one of the world's best sword makers, and Mm -hmm. Lasse Matala, who is a really, really good conservative arms and armor, right? Who knows more about armor than I ever will. And we really enjoyed the film because it made no attempt whatsoever to be in any way serious, right? But um, if that film had been aimed at us specifically, they would have got the details right in the same way that they do in some areas in other films, Yes. right? Mm -hmm. So if these people are writing for the nightly classes... For experts in martial arts, like yeah, if you wrote, go back to special forces. If if somebody wrote a book about special forces soldiers aimed at special forces, they were the target audience. You would get a special forces person who knows what they're doing to check the book for you before you send it out to your readers, so you don't get you know humiliated. Yes. So so I mean, how how could how could it not be accurate? And as I said, we have to remember that, you know, Sir Gawain was the embodiment of, of the English chivalry. So mm-hmm. if he is uh, praised in those romances as the best fighter, the the embodiment of all uh, knightly virtues in the per- performative mode, uh, then... And you add the lessons to that, as I said, because in that romance I mentioned, uh, he is preparing for uh, an armed single combat with the best fighter of the enemy camp. And there is an elderly knight uh, in the army of, of Sir Arthur, and he actually teaches him, right? And, and he says, right. listen, if he attacks you in this way, then remember, do this thing. But if he da- wants to do the same thing against you, then use that against him. So it's exactly how fight books were written. Right. So if you wanted the original audi- audience who... Uh, surrounded Sir Gawain with almost, you know, cult hero status. If you want them to buy into the idea of Sir Gawain being the best fighter and him, him being at some point uh, in dire straits because he's fighting against the very best of the opposing side and you want to sell them on this dramaticism, it has to be realistic. They have right. to recognize... Real plays, real actions and attacks mm-hmm. 
for the whole thing to be entertaining. Yeah, of course. And how does that stuff line up with what we find in the fight books? Uh, it lines up amazingly. I have found literal translations, almost one-to-one, of uh, a, a couple of plays from uh, Fiore and from Gladiatoria in those uh, uh, romances. Okay, so I have to ask, have you published this? No, I'm currently working on a book. <laughs> okay, well, I, I was going to say, so what are you working on at the moment? Okay, tell us about your book. So, um... I, I have uh, published a, a couple of articles, actually, you know, written a couple of articles be- because uh, a number of them are still wa- waiting uh, to be published. Uh, on on the s- side note, I, I'll just say that it's really hard to find someone uh, in, in modern academic journals who would be actually interested in publishing that sort of stuff. Because you you have the division right. between you know history and literary studies, but if you walk in and you say uh, th- so, I'm reading those uh, romances, and now I'm I'm going to show you how I compared them with information from fighting treatises and and documents on you know records of actual formal combat. I get responses of yes, that's very interested, uh, interesting. However, we will not pursue publishing it because it doesn't right. fit the the idea which, of our journal. Which is funny because the interdisciplinarity is like so fashionable these days that surely, so. like literature and history. I mean, okay, most history comes from literature. Yes, like we history is mostly based on written sources. That's so, right. So, so what the hell? I don't know. Beats me. Okay. So, so, okay. So tell us about your book. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I decided that, you know, I'll collect all those findings and I, I'm still very much in, uh, in course of research, right? I haven't finished. Yeah. I am reading into those things. I have found, uh, a lot of interesting things and, and I, I have already started writing, but the, the, basically the whole idea is, trying to uh, show how those Middle English romances can serve as a type of a, a record of uh, English martial arts, or of how they could have been used as a vehicle to translate certain lessons that might otherwise have been found in fight books. Because we have to remember that even those we have a plethora of surviving fight books, it's, it was still something that was incredibly rare. Once again, if we come back to Fiore, he himself said that he didn't even think about writing any, any of his teachings down. It was one of his students, Galiazzo de Montova, who came to him and, and said, listen, master, maybe you should write all those things down. <laughs> okay, and I just have to say this. I had the same experience. Like, the only reason I wrote my first book is because one of my students asked me to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, but anyway, and, and, not, to, and, not to compare myself with Fiore, of course, but, but sorry, but carry on. Fiore says that actually this student of his was the only student he had that owned a fight book. Hmm. Right? And he, he taught a number of knights of probably, you know, 
well socially situated yeah. uh, individuals who could afford to have a book like that yet they didn't so uh my thought is uh, especially you know given strong connections between england and italy uh and to a lesser extent in england and germany it's impossible to think that english knights didn't know about those martial systems and i'm sure, sure some of them studied them and and you know brought them back home so to my mind the best easiest way to spread the awareness to spread those teachings to the widest greatest uh audience uh of the time was to incorporate them into those narratives into those popular stories because if a member of the court of Sir, uh, of king arthur teaches sir gawain who was the greatest knight how to deal with someone who is attacking you in single combat or you know in in mounted uh, battle scenario in a given way and it actually makes sense right because when you compare it to what Fiore, for instance, shows on, on Rosfechten, so, so fighting on horseback, it, it very much interlocks, right? So, sure. so my idea basically is to, to find all of those traces, to compare them with uh, known fight books, but also known records of actual single combat we, we have from the time period, and show how that that combination of literature and martial arts could help us do something more for the understanding of of English chivalry. To some extent, uh, I was inspired by the work of Toby Capwell, who, who wanted to to sh shed more light on the English style of armor. So I would like to do the same for the the English martial arts. Fantastic. Okay, so I have to ask, when do you think the book is going to come out? Uh, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want to devote the, the next two months to working on it, but then it's a case of finding, finding a publisher uh, of... Uh, you know, okay. getting the, all the technicalities behind publishing a book. And as it's, it's going to be my first book, there is a lot of testing to, to go into that. Of course. Okay, I have a question. Do you want the book to... Um, okay, if, if, it want, if you're going to use it to kind of further your career... Mm -hmm. it needs to be published by an academic press. That's right. Right? Yes. But if you want to actually make money from it, mm -hmm. you should probably publish it yourself. Actually, but my idea was first to publish it through an uh, academic, uh, academic publisher for mm -hmm. the, the requirements of my academic work and then uh, tweak it, uh, add maybe uh, a couple of things that are of more interest to, to people who are very much into uh, historical martial arts, but maybe not that much into academic stuff, and, and publish mm -hmm. a, a second version for the gener general audience. That, that's the, the I just had a thought. Mm -hmm. My thought is, you could write it out as a second PhD, because that would give you like the structure and like the external 
assistance from mm-hmm. academia, you know, like the yeah, and you know all the sort of the, the pushback you get from supervisors, and you know, it would help you craft the scholarship, mm-hmm. and it would give you a super easy way to get it technically published. Because like all all PhD all PhD theses are published by the university that grants the um, degree. Not right? in Poland. No. No. I mean, they, 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 I mean, okay. In in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. my I had to supply the university with um, like two or three copies of my thesis for their libraries. So that's mm-hmm. what I, what I, I don't mean they actually publish it and like sell it in bookshops. I mean. It oh, yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. It, it's it's recorded as yours and yeah. it's in a library somewhere. Okay, right. So right. Yeah. So that's that's what I mean. I didn't mean like they put it out as a book. <laughs> um, and then then you have basically all the scholarship done, all, all the work is done, mm-hmm. and you know it's done to the necessary level because it has been properly examined. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, then just smooth it out, rewrite it a little bit, tweak it about, make it a bit more accessible. That's and there you have your thing that you could publish yourself. That's more or less the plan, yes. Okay. Yeah. I think you need to get on with it, though, because I want to read it. <laughs> I, I'm, really, I'm really giving it my, my, my best. Uh, I, ha- I never had trouble devoting myself wholeheartedly to writing, so okay. uh, I, I'm capable of writing, you know, eight, ten hours straight every day. Wow, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm maxed out at about three or four. Okay, so the, the, I hope that I will manage to finish this year. Hopefully, okay. you know, before the summer is done. But we'll okay. see. Well, if you want, if you need any help in any aspect of the book production side of things, I, will I do all that you. stuff myself. Yeah, do. Absolutely do. Uh, anything I can do to help midwife this book out into the world... I would sure. be doing the community a favor, so and also doing myself a favor because then I get to read it. <laughs> I will absolutely take you up on that. Good, do, um, and yes, and and listeners, you can thank me when it comes out <laughs> because it sounds really exciting. It's like how cool is that? Like you have these these sources that should give us a picture of medieval combat in England, like you know, fourteenth century stuff is just genius. Like it's it's a window we didn't know was there, and hopefully you know it shows uh, certain certain parts of the academia that there is a real merit to marrying mm. academic uh, academic research with hands-on practical experience uh, yeah. in in HEMA. That's 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 another thing. Like I was quite um, I had to sort of wiggle about a bit. And, and sort of be inventive in my approach to get Edinburgh University to accept my, because my PhD is basically based on three of my books and it's explicitly about the reconstruction of the practical art, not just the academic stuff, but the, okay, and how do we incorporate this information we get from getting stabbed in the face by our friends? <laughs> right? And yeah, they are, I, I sort of, I use the word interdisciplinary a lot, mm-hmm. and that apparently was quite helpful. I'm told by my supervisor. <laughs> so, 
I mean, it's obvious to us that the the practice informs the research, the research informs the practice, and if you do it right, you get a virtuous cycle that just perpetuates, and it, you know the practice will tell you where to go to look for the next thing, and the research will tell you what to practice next, and round and round and round it goes, right? And that's obvious to us that do it, but not so obvious to people whose entire world is a library. Because you know that that kind of goes against the the typical traditional approach to to the academia. Uh, I think you know some people uh, might uh, kind of laugh at that uh, seeing um, uh, an Indiana Jones complex. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, okay. Let me just show you this. It's right here. Okay. Here is a proper bullwhip, and here is here is my jacket, and my jacket was was made right by Peter Botwright, who made the who made the jackets for the movies, right? So this right. is same material, same design. Like this is the proper Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark jacket from the factory where they made them for the films. Like yes, and 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 you think academics think that's a bad thing? Uh I mean, yes and no, right? Because okay. uh, I have met with very warm reception, especially uh, in my uh, uh, university, where the, the people I work with are really welcoming to new ideas, and they mm -hmm. they are really happy when someone comes up with something new. And 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 I I met with. You know, only positive reception and people cheering me on. Uh, but um, when I talked to some of the uh, Western uh, academics, uh, the, there was a conference uh, last year that I attended, a, a medievalist mm -hmm. conference, and there was uh, one notable uh, American scholar uh, who, upon learning what I do, said that uh, it's very curious, however... He thinks it would be frowned upon at his university because <laughs> people there look with suspicion on academics who are too practical. Uh, in Insane. <laughs> 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 They obviously haven't met Daniel Jacquet. Do you, do you know Daniel? Uh, no. You don't know Daniel Jacquet? No, no. Unfortunately okay. not. He's, he's a, a Swiss academic um he's the guy that did a like an assault course run with him in armor and a fireman in full firefighting gear and a soldier yeah he's the guy in the armor i interviewed okay. him for this show and he he does academic research into the practical uses of armor like for instance um they did this study on the on the forces involved in wearing armor mm -hmm. and running in armor and doing various things. And he actually demonstrated that in certain circumstances, there are ranges of motion that the armor allows that you can't get without it because the weight of the armor creates the range of motion, mm -hmm. right? Stuff like that. So, okay, I will very happily introduce you when we come off the interview because I think yeah. you guys would get on really well. Great. So uh, a little confession here on, yeah. on how, you know, I'm received uh, uh, at my university. Uh, recently, uh, literally last week or two weeks ago, I learned that behind the scenes, behind my back, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, the dean, uh, the, 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 the people, you know, who, who work at the university, they all refer to me as the knight. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even use my name. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, uh, to, to that extent, I think the, uh, I found the, the right place, the, the yeah. right university to, to practice right. what I do. Yeah. Okay, I'm just making a note to, to email Daniel and sure. put, put you guys in touch because you have so much in common. <laughs> and particularly, like, he has a PhD in this stuff as, as well, and he is doing academic research and using like, the, the structures of academia for historical martial arts purposes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think you two could. Well, I mean, imagine if okay, if you show if you show up at a conference and you're the only guy in armor, you look a bit odd. But if you both show up to a conference <laughs> in armor, right, from two separate universities, it starts to it starts to be less of the lone weirdo and starts being oh, actually, there's more than one university that tolerates this sort of stuff. Maybe we should. I actually did that once. <laughs> I, I attended the conference in my armor. Yes. How was that received? Uh, there the was a, an uproar, but a positive one. Right. Uh, there the, the was a lot of interest. Uh, at some point, sure. I was actually asked by one of the panelists uh, to teach her the basics of, of longsword fighting. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> she was really into that. And she absolutely loved it when I told her that she can bash onto the uh, the, the, the sword I gave her anywhere yeah. she wants on my armor to, to show her that it really works. Right. Oh, she loved it. She was giggling all the way. Fantastic. And, you know, I think real medievalists, given the chance to actually handle armor, they love it. Yeah. It's like, it's like it's not who, exactly, who wouldn't? <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of armor... Um, there are quite a few people listening, I would imagine, who would quite like to get into armored combat, mm-hmm. and they see a beautiful suit of armor, and they go, oh my god, I want that, and then they look into what it's going to cost, and they realize that that's like a year's salary. And so they're put off from the whole project. So how would you suggest people get into armored combat if they don't happen to have a trust fund and a Bentley and a Rolex and all that lot? <laughs> so first of all, uh, my current armor that I absolutely love to bits, uh, it's my fourth, and right. that's the first one I'm really satisfied su- satisfied with. So it only goes to show that there is a lot of work that goes into assembling a proper kit. But to those people who would like to be uh, to to get into fighting in armor, I would say just go into a club that teaches you fighting in armor. Because uh, we, uh, in our club, for instance, we allow people who have just the basic soft kit, even the Blossfechten one, to come to classes and to start the movement, right? To learn the, sure. the, the movement. And uh, you don't have to have the entire armor straight away. No one needs that. The first thing that everyone needs is, as I said, a soft kit, a foundation garment, one properly made. Don't buy one off the rack. Because, you know, uh, 
for Bloss Pechten, for Unarmored Combat, uh, the, the off-the-rack uh, things are a-okay. Yeah. Like most, uh, you know, modern sports gear, they are very good. But you have to remember that how well you move in armor and how well the armor works is largely dependent on how well the foundation works. And it has to be tailor-made for you. Uh, side note, it's a brilliant incentive not to gain weight. <laughs> do you know, okay, right, I'm going to Kansas next week to mm-hmm. do uh, wrestling stuff with Jessica Finley. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to wear my arming jacket uh-huh. that I, I, I got made when I got, uh, when I, so when I, armor the first thing i bought as you recommend although we didn't know each other that mm-hmm. then was a tailor-made arming jacket for hanging the armor on yes right and basically it fits so tight it's like skin but mm-hmm. i can move pretty much the same as i can move without it on mm-hmm. and it's got all these attachment points for the armor and particularly the waist mm-hmm. is super tight so anything hanging off the jacket is hanging on my waist that's right right yeah right, it's fantastic okay um, and I got that made about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I tried it on <laughs> last weekend. I was like, oh shit, I've got a week to lose about six kilos. Because <laughs> that fucking thing does not fit around my waist anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the of the main things that leads my uh, physical workouts. Right. I, I try to you know keep fit and to keep my body at at, at peak condition, but without gaining <laughs> anything <laughs> or without losing anything. So as I said, ga- uh, the the foundation garment absolutely the most important part. Then you get helmet and upper limbs uh, protection. Okay. Uh, why those two? Uh, one, fencing mask is good to begin with and not to get hit in the face, but it tells you nothing about the limitations of vision and, and respirations that you have to face in a helmet. Yeah. So a properly made helmet, incredibly important. Yeah. And upper limbs... Uh, gauntlets are the most important part because uh, I see many people trying to use those uh, plastic ah, yeah, horrible. gauntlets. No, you know, the, the I ones. hate those things so much. They are overbuilt. They are and and, and they are shit even for yes. unarmored longsword stuff. They have no place That's in existence. Right. Just use steel gauntlets. I, I have a pair of steel gauntlets I've had. Since about two thousand and four, and they're fantastic. I, you know, I've replaced a couple of leather bits. I've mm-hmm. replaced the gloves a couple of times, but yeah, they last forever, and they cost me about two hundred and fifty euros. Yeah. So, so gauntlets are incredibly important because yeah. one thing you have to realize is, uh, contrary to bloss fashion, because if you uh, enter a long set sword tournament, rapier tournament, saber tournament, whatever, right? You mm-hmm. fight with this one weapon. Harnish Fechten? No. You have uh, your primary weapon. That would be a pole arm, uh, usually. But then you either lose it, you discard it, you throw it at the opponent. Then you use your sword. And then you have the dagger. 
So you have to be capable of indexing your weapons quickly, yeah. of grabbing them, of uh, changing the the way you hold them. Uh, because especially in Polax, you have a lot of changes in how you grasp the pole, how you have, you know, thumbs facing the same uh, side, the, the thumbs uh, facing the head, all of the gymnastics that go around uh, with it. And if you don't have properly made gauntlets, if you have this, this huge bulk of plastic... Yeah. It's impossible to do anything properly. Correct. I and, couldn't agree more. And the the uh van braces because you have to learn how armor makes you move. I think that you know you can train harness Feshten uh, a long time without leg harness mm -hmm. because it doesn't really change that much, but the way uh the, the biomechanics change with a full arm uh, upper limb protection is incredible as you said right it it weighs you down but it also adds certain things yeah so uh the the way you operate weapons but also the way your body reacts to uh grappling to holds to arm bars what you can and cannot do with the opponent uh, and opponent's weapon it, it's all very much connected to to upper limb uh, armor so i would say that if someone wants to start training first go for soft kit right uh the, the foundation garments and train the very basics the movement because you have to learn for instance how to uh, use half sorting. It's not yeah. something that that everyone just gets instantly. Then get yourself a helmet uh, and gauntlets and upper limb uh, armor without the shoulders. Because even in Fiora, you have techniques shown with guys have uh, protecting the shoulders only with male sleeves. Right. So you can train. Uh, for for a long time with only male sleeves covering your shoulder uh, and not no plate there and it's still reflective of how many men at arms use those techniques and then you know uh, torso shoulders and the the lower limbs are the last thing so yes a properly tailored armor is expensive but hey, you don't have to go for high gothic or for full Milanese armor. If you consider, for instance, the, the, the armor worn uh, at the end of the 14th century, it's much more affordable. It's, uh, it has smaller pieces, simpler pieces. Uh, so things that are uh, much uh, less expensive and are easier to collect. Okay. That's what I Excellent. say. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. Um, I know that some people are going to be like, Guy, you've got to ask this question because I know my listeners quite well. And some of them are thinking, okay, so what the hell does he do to train to stay in the same shape as much as possible? Could you just briefly survey your <laughs> training routine? So, so the funny thing is, when I was uh, an MA uh, student, uh, 
I got really into uh, physical fitness and I actually got certified uh, as a fitness instructor. Uh, so I have my own diet, I have my own workout routine in the gym uh, and I have devised uh, a kind of a workout schedule that is created uh, for the requirements of armored fighting. I have okay. used certain, uh, you know, bodybuilding techniques, uh, modified others, added some conditioning that, that is purely connected with armor, like uh, running intervals in my helmet. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it has proven to work very well throughout the years. Okay, so what does your, like, a week's routine look like? Uh, okay, so usually uh, on Mondays I do gym uh, on sometimes on Tuesday too, but different. So what are you doing in areas. the gym? Uh, the the thing is, I never do the same exact workout twice. I mean, uh, neither. In a uh, in a span of a week, but also I, I try not to repeat this the same things in a span of two or three weeks so i focus on the same parts of the body so for instance you know shoulders or chest or back but i i, I attack them with different sets of uh of exercises because i don't want to get used you don't uh, want to get Sorry, don't I, I don't want to get used to, to certain exercises. Right? Ah, okay. So you, you don't want to become accustomed to the exercise. Yes, that's right. right. Okay. So uh, uh, to, to in, improve hypertrophy and to uh, challenge myself for the requirements of armed combat, uh, I mainly train with weights. So okay. I, I don't really do machines. Yep. And... Um, I combine intervals such as the yes, the kettlebells are amazing, yes. absolutely yes, yes sure, and uh, I think it's very important that there's this uh, protocol uh, called uh, reps in reserve. So basically, instead of thinking to yourself, okay, I'll do eight movements every time when I do this exercise or 10 movements yeah. in, in four reps, you never do that. You, you uh, when you do the reps in reserve, you work out up to a point when you feel that you would probably be able to do two or three movements of the same type. And that would be the limit of your uh, capabilities. Right. And in every rep, you do the same thing. So the first rep, when you're fresh, could be 16. The second could be 14. The third could be 10. The fourth oh, could be okay. 8. So, so each, each set has yes. the number of reps that, that leaves you a little bit in the tank. That's right. That's an interesting way to do it. Okay. Uh, it's a protocol that, that is well-researched because I, I sure. try to keep afloat the, the latest research I, I read you know what they publish on on the topic and uh, it has proven to be a, a good protocol for hypertrophy but it also uh i think it's safer 
Because yeah. if you monitor yourself and instead of pushing yourself be- because you feel you need to do those two additional movements to you know fulfill your plan, you yeah. you work uh, with more of a sync with your body, mm-hmm. and you you think to yourself, okay, so that I'm tired, right? That's how much I can do in the last rep, and it's good. Because the, the fact that I feel soreness in my muscles means that the uh, previous reps were challenging enough and my muscles did the work. Right. Okay. So that's, that, that's the basic protocol I, I, I follow. Okay. So that takes us to Monday. What happens on Tuesday? Okay. Uh, so a Tuesday uh, is usually more of an interval. I, uh, I love the Tabata protocol. Okay. So uh, 20 seconds of very intensive workouts, 10 seconds of break, 20 seconds of workout, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, add to that um, interval boxing and interval running. Okay. Uh, when I run, I use a breathing mask, uh, a mask that basically... Because you're a masochist. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, those are those are quite funny because I remember years ago, they were advertised as, you know, uh, something that would be comparable to you working out uh, in the mountains. Yeah, right. It's, yeah, altitude training. Yes, yes. It's, it's absolute bullcrap. They don't. But no. if you want to prepare to the oxygen, uh, oxygen uh, um, exhaustion that you... Uh, experience in a helmet they are brilliant because basically you can cut off uh oxygen intake yeah and and also you have to breathe in much harder and much deeper for the mask to let some oxygen in so it it teaches you to uh have a more regular deeper breathing and you don't hyperventilate because many people who start in armor who are not experienced uh, after a couple of minutes they they start choking and they 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 gasp for air and that's not something you should do in armor (laughs) no Uh, and sometimes if you know the there are not many gym patrons and i and i don't scare many people i actually take a helmet into my gym bag and and I put it on and, and I run intervals with it. Excellent. Okay. Uh, that's plus, Tuesday. Yes, that's Tuesday. Uh, now uh, Wednesday is Harnish Festen classes, so it's about uh, an hour and a half in armor. Uh, depending on the week, we either focus on pure technical uh, training. Or we, you know, mix it up with some uh, light sparring, but still we do all of that in full kit. Uh, and I stress uh, fighting in closed visor right. as much as possible. We to get only, used to it. Yes, we pretty much only open our visors to discuss things. Because right. we know that uh, communicating effectively uh, <laughs> wearing a, a, a closed visor is not the easiest way in the, uh, the, the easiest thing in the world world, but we are you know 
conditioning ourselves yeah. with, with the closed helmet. Uh, so that's Wednesday evening. Thursday morning is weight training. Uh, Friday is rest. Saturday is the sparring day. Not every week, unfortunately, but you know how it is. Uh, sure. Trying to uh, organize a group of guys, you know, many of whom have kids and so on. Not that easy, but we try to meet at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. Uh, so uh, we get to the club uh, at around 9 or 10 a.m. We don uh, the armor and we fight duels as long as there is anyone capable of <laughs> remaining standing. <laughs> so it, it's it's up to three hours in in harness, uh, and then we really go through the whole thing. So we use spears, poleaxes, swords. Uh, we do grappling. We do uh, dagger fighting. Everything that goes. Uh, and Sunday is either weightlifting or a rest. Okay. So how is that weightlifting different to what you do in the gym? Uh, so the weightlifting I do, uh, as I said, it is a combination of of regular gym lifting mm -hmm. but uh as you for instance uh have shown me your collection of kettlebells uh i do certain compound movements and certain uh collections of sequences of movement that are meant to activate the same muscle groups that go into fighting so such as such as, uh, for instance, I uh, take a barbell, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, this kind of a uh, lighter, not Olympic barbell, not something you would use to, to train. Uh, yeah, that's a 20 work. kilo bar. No, 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 no. The, the, the <laughs> ones I use are, I think, 12 kilos. Okay. Uh, and I put uh, around two and a half kilos on one side. Right. Uh, I grab it as I would a poleaxe, and right. I I practice movements from poleaxe techniques uh, in a controlled manner. You know, not swinging wildly the way yeah, yeah, yeah. I would a weapon, but go slowly through it so you're supporting yes. the motion. Yes. Yeah, that is fucking brutal. I, I have done similar things myself. <laughs> it's great fun. So, so uh, <laughs> those things are, or for instance, I put uh, weight bands on my uh, forearms mm -hmm. and I take a sword, uh, I add a weight band onto it and I go slowly through uh, techniques, uh, both half-swording and the Blospechten. Uh, and By weight then, band, you mean, like, you mean like the kind of thing that they sell to like put around your ankles if you go running? Yes. You should do yes. that, but that sort yes. of thing, okay? Like a weighted that sort of thing. strap. Yes, okay. yes. Because, uh, you know, putting your entire entire harness just to do 30 minutes of slow practice wouldn't make much sense. No. But uh, if you're not swinging wildly, but you are doing it that in a very, you know, slow, controlled manner, controlling the, the tension in the muscles and so on, uh, I have discovered it to be very helpful uh, right. for... for uh, and it's it's 
I mean, you said you used to do Koryu stuff. I have seen similar things done by Koryu practitioners with mm-hmm. like a special weighted sword mm-hmm. that was like deliberately built to be like twice as heavy as the real thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have my Bokhurt sword, which is. Which <laughs> <laughs> is already twice as heavy as the real thing. Okay. <laughs> because uh, as you probably know, the. the the weapons in Bohurt, uh, I wouldn't really call them weapons. They are uh, bars of metal, crudely shaped, <laughs> glorified <laughs> bars of metal. So the, the sword I used for Bohurt, uh it weighs almost three kilos. Oh, God. So it's it's ungodly weight. Uh, it, it's about it twice is, the weight it should be. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it actually, at some point it broke. So, so it's wow. shorter than it used to be, and, and also lighter. Oh my uh, right. So, and, and you you maintain this sort of training regime pretty much every week through the year. Yes, yes. I okay. haven't had a week's break since I don't remember when. Even in okay. in the COVID. Pandemic. I, I would do the same things in my apartment. Yeah, right. Sure. Okay. Um, so that's that's a pretty intense physical regime. Um, if you had to pick like one element of it, mm-hmm. what would you pick? Uh, to recommend or yeah. to keep doing? Because <laughs> here's the thing: almost nobody. Mm-hmm. is going to go, oh, actually, that sounds like a totally reasonable program. I'm going to do that, right? But if we can get them started with maybe one of those things, mm-hmm. and then get used to that, and then they might add the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing. So if you're going to pick one thing, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking I would probably go with the wind sprints in with a helmet on. That would be my go-to thing, probably. I what would, you, what would you say? if... If we are dealing with someone who is already used to wearing armor, because okay. if someone just got a helmet, that's oh, the yes, best way to. to <laughs> but <laughs> also, that's the best way to to lose consciousness on a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So not a good idea. Uh, if I were to choose anything off of all the things I told you about, it would be the sparring. Okay. That that's something that I would highly recommend to anyone because I think many people, be that in uh, living history, be that in Buhur, mm. be be that in uh, Hima, they too too often, uh, you know, focus on uh, going to an event and only then using the armor, whereas they should live with it right get yeah. used to it the armor should be your second skin you yeah, should... I mean, back when i was back when i was training mm-hmm. with my armor um in finland i would like wear my cuirass and arms to teach classes including like rapier classes mm-hmm. right it doesn't matter what i was teaching i'd be wearing that to get used to wearing it mm-hmm. absolutely and when i yeah. say sparring right I don't mean going full on, because as I said, you know, two, three hours, you wouldn't be able to keep it up if you were using your entire strength and and power throughout. No, what I mean is go out there with with the other guys or or girls and uh, just go through the motions, right? Start light, 
start mm -hmm. with uh, maybe choose, for instance, two or three techniques that are only allowed and focus on a very technical sparring where mm -hmm. everyone is looking for the opening and then you are learning not only how to use the openings of your opponent, but what's even more important, you learn about your own openings because that's right. hugely important. And that's something we have to remember because, you know, very many people, uh, when they look at medieval armor, they think to themselves, oh, it makes no sense. Why would they fight with a gap here or... Why would they fight with an raised visor? Well, they knew that's the opening. Yeah. So if you know that, you know how to protect it. And what's even more important, you know how to use it. Because there are right. techniques, especially armored fighting techniques, where you actually want to trigger a certain response from your enemy. And you, for instance, you raise your arms to show your armpit because you want to provoke the uh, the opponent to try to stab you there, and you have a ready counter for that. Right. So, yeah. so you're, you're using gaps in the armor as invitations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And th th this is very uh, similar to, to boxing. Sure. Like, w when you think of the Philly stands, right, with the uncovered chin and your left hand uh, grasping your torso... Uh, you are inviting the the opponent to hit your face, right? It's, it's right. here, it's open, go for it. <laughs> but you're prepared, it's a trap. <laughs> of course. And, and those things you can only learn if you practice in armor, if you spend yeah. a lot of time in it. Yeah, that's very true. Um, okay, now I have a couple of questions that I ask almost all of my guests. Mm -hmm. um, sure. and the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Other than your book, which you are acting on. Yes, you are yes, I am very book, so much I'll... acting on it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, book. two things that come to my mind. Uh, one is somehow connected to, to my deep love for uh, uh, English Middle Ages. So I had this idea years ago, and I was actually trying to do that. I, I really wanted to uh, visit the Canterbury Cathedral in full armor. And go to oh, the. Right yes, I've been there uh, on a couple of occasions. That was the, the first uh, time I went there. It was a tremendous experience because, as I said, I idolized uh, Edward uh, of Woodstock. So you know, being there next to his to his uh, effigy, that was a brilliant thing. But I wanted to make it more sh chivalric, and I wanted to, you know go to him in my armor. Uh, unfortunately, things fell through, and I didn't get uh, uh, acceptance from the, the powers that be, uh, and, you know, I couldn't go there. They just didn't allow me. Did you ask first? Yes, yes, I did. Oh, huge mistake. Okay. <laughs> if you just show up, if you just show up in the armor, uh -huh. and it's clearly, I mean, I just walk in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Didn't what, know what are they going to do? <laughs> the thing is, if you ask them for permission mm -hmm. and they grant permission mm -hmm. and you turn out to be a lunatic who does mm -hmm. something inappropriate in the armor, then they are liable. True. But if you just show up as a member of the public wearing these clothes <laughs> and just walk in, so long as you behave in a calm and respectful manner, which I'm no doubt you would, what are they going to say? I might just try it someday. 
Yeah, I tell you what, I tell you what. If that happens, let me know, and if I can make it, I'll come with you. All right. And if somebody, you know, I say, ah, oh, hello, yes, I am Doctor So and So, and this is Doctor, and yeah, isn't it absolutely? And I can I can distract them with sort of English bullshit. Uh-huh. While you go off and have a gentle word with Edward. <laughs> okay, sounds like a plan. I love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that, it's, it's always better to get forgiveness than permission. All right, all right. And the second thing is, I think I mentioned that when we last talked, uh, I, I really want to one day collect a set of armors representatives of the harnesses used in all the major fight books. And okay. recreate every single uh, plate from those those fight books in, in the, the correct armor. In correct armor, yes. Okay, that's that's my dream. That that may take a while, and <laughs> and um, and assistant professors of English literature don't make that kind of money, so you can't just Not buy even it remotely. No, <laughs> um, but I mean. There may be ways to do it that doesn't involve necessarily buying all that armor. I mean, that would be nice to have, mm-hmm. but there are lots of armor combat people who are madly interested in the treatises. You might be able to organize it sort of piecemeal, like you've got this armor, they've got that armor, so you get together one weekend and go through these things and take photographs and stuff. Uh, that's true. However, I think having all of those is crazy. It's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's gate, gateway drugs. I'm, I, I'm a big fan of, okay, if you have a goal that is yay high and hard to reach, if you can, if you can find the next small step that takes you in that general direction, that's, that's more likely to lead, lead to the step after that and then eventually the step after that and, and the way up you go. It's like the whole business of, you know, people getting into armor. They don't start by spending the cost of a decent car, brand new decent car, on harness. They start with an arming jacket, tailor-made. And that's probably, maybe that's going to take them six months to save up for, right? But that's that's where they start. And then the next piece, a helmet maybe. That's probably going to take them a year to save up for. But in 18 months' time, they've got the jacket and they've got the helmet and they're super happy. And now they're thinking about gauntlets, for instance, right? On the so, so, yeah, go ahead. I think one thing we should add, because I forgot, uh, but it's immensely important. If someone wants to have a proper harness and, you know, for proper historical combat, don't go for so-called sports optimized. That's right. a, a a euphemism used in Buchurt, uh for armor right. that is subpar and ahistorical and overbuilt and not made to be remotely representative of of the historical historical originals. So it's better to save up and have a proper thing done one that is representative of what you actually see in museums or in historical art, rather than buying something cheaply that has a high probability of of actually hurting you. Do you know, okay, funny story. My first suit of armor I have made by a checksmith who had done other stuff for me in the past. I won't name him because the story doesn't turn out too well for him. Mm-hmm. And I sent off my measurements and everything. And because of the way things were done, I ended up getting sent the armor 
without actually having a proper fitting. Mm. Okay. You know how greaves fit your leg mm-hmm. like a skin? And yes. so the whole weight of the greave mm-hmm. is kind of held on the calf muscle, pretty much. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't kind of fall down onto your ankle. No. Okay. I actually tried this. Mm-hmm. I could fit a bottle of wine down the back of each grief. That's <laughs> how badly it fit, right? And I took it to a friend of mine in Finland who is a very good armorer, mm-hmm. and the metal was so shit that he couldn't weld it properly. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't... I mean, he, he, he managed to make a few adjustments, but he couldn't really work with it properly because there was too much sulfur in the steel, mm-hmm. right? So... Fortunately, I ended up selling it for about what I paid for it to the opera house in, in Helsinki. <laughs> so if you see a suit of armor on stage in an opera in Helsinki, it's, and no one's wearing it, it's just like standing there on the stage. It's probably my old armor. <laughs> and then I, 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 I started then going the piecemeal, find a good armorer and get one thing made. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing made and so on like that. So. Yes, yeah. I've, 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 I've done it the wrong way, so I know, I, I know you're right. <laughs> uh, the, the, that's, that's part of the reason why I object to, to calling most of what you can see in Buhurd armor. I think that sports defenses, sports protection yeah. is something... Or you, or you could call it Buhurd armor. Uh, yeah. But no, like, 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 like the armor... armor. Um, yeah, but the armor, armor on an armored car is armor mm-hmm. on an armored car, that, and that's, that's right. not confusing. And the armor that that soldiers wear, like mm-hmm. you know, sniper plates and whatnot, that's armor, and it's what soldiers wear. And the armor that Bohut um, fighters wear to do Bohut, that's Bohut armor, and that's its own thing. And then there's and then there's I, historical armor. I wouldn't fully agree because the problem is. Um, the, it's a bit predatory, I think, sometimes, because there are many people who just don't know the difference. And right, okay. uh, if you are a complete beginner, uh, a Buhurd armor is close enough to your, you know, mind's eye image yeah. of a knight that you could be duped into believing it's proper armor. That's why oh, okay. I, I don't like calling it armor. Uh, very okay. often, because I think if you call it, you know, protect protection or defenses or guard or whatever, it has this sports association that is much closer to what Buhut actually is. Okay. And, you know, I I did Buhut for a very long time. I started in 2007. I, I, I was a part of the Battle of the Nations and... Uh, IMCF from the very beginning, and I really enjoyed the sport, but as a sport. Yeah. And uh, what I really don't like is people conflating history with Buhurd. Buhurd is very much a modern sport. It's a great sport, very entertaining. Uh, I think f- for many people, it could be a great entry into sure. historical combat. It sure was for me. Because I didn't know about Hema when I was starting. Uh, but, you know, trying to sell it as a representation of, of medieval battle just rubs me the wrong way. Well, I, it's the same, I feel the same way about like, um, SCA heavy combat stuff, the, the mm-hmm. Rattan sticks and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's its own thing. It's a great thing. It's a fantastic gateway drug into historical martial arts. 
And I'm super glad it exists. And I'm just sorry I didn't come across it until I was well into historical martial arts. Because if I found it much earlier, I'd have had a great time bashing my friends with these rattan sticks. But the moment someone refers to it as medieval combat, I get very irritable. Because <laughs> it's not the same thing. Okay, so leaving that aside, my last question. Mm-hmm. Somebody gives you a million dollars, euros, pounds, gold coins or whatever. And unusually for this podcast, I'm actually going to place a restriction on what you can spend it on. You can't spend it on armor for your collection, okay? <laughs> right? Oh, shit. But to, but, but to use it to spend, you can spend it on improving historical martial arts worldwide. Mm-hmm. So with the you can't improve your armor collection caveat, how would you spend it? Uh, well, I actually have a couple of ideas because uh, some time ago uh, I started working with my armorer friend who is a brilliant expert, uh, Radosław Ciszewski. He is one of the absolute foremost armorers in, in the world, bar none. Uh, Radoslaus, uh, the armorer to, to, to the Western public. And I started working with him on uh, accessible... Harnischfechten kits. So something that would be representative of the, the kind of munitions grade armor you could expect from a medieval man at arms, but something that would be easy to manufacture, uh, and that could be bought by clubs. Uh, for the time being, I want my club to, to buy a, a couple of sets, uh, to have something to offer to a uh, newcomer who wants to try it. Sure. Because, you know, when someone comes to our club and says, I would like to try longsword, I would like to s- try sword and buckler, uh, rapier, we have a bunch of fencing masks, we have a bunch of uh, safe uh, training weapons, uh, some, uh, you know, padded uh, jacks and so on. And they can get into that much quicker. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if there was uh, an available set of easily adjustable armor, because even in Middle Ages, the, the, the munition grades armor would come in small, medium, and large, right? Yeah, and sure. so you can use the, the basic ideas that existed back in the Middle Ages, but have something waiting there so that come, some, someone comes to your club, they already start training with armor, they feel the weight of it, they, they feel the limitations, they, they uh, can have something that is a proper helmet on, on their head, while the, they are working their way up to their own kit. Right. So uh, I think the the first thing I would invest in is developing something like that and offering it to clubs around the world because I think that would do wonders to to people coming in and staying in. Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the second thing that comes to my mind is you know to promote historical fighting. Uh, to promote it in in two ways, I think that uh, I I'm sure you are aware of a group. Uh, I I will probably butcher their name, but I think it's Adorea. Uh, they have they have a YouTube channel, and they have a a bunch of very 
entertaining videos choreographed fights with different historical weapons that uh, they kind of dramatize but they mm-hmm. use uh, historical fighting techniques and they okay. present those in those cinematic choreographies uh, they, yeah. they, they, they had a brilliant one with long swords and so on so I would make a, a couple of well-produced videos of this sort showing mm-hmm. the potential of actual historical armored combat because I think that if people saw how brilliantly visceral and entertaining the real stuff, not what you can see in, you know, uh, uh, Renaissance Fair or, or Bukhurt yeah. uh, tournament, how the real stuff looks like, then uh, people would respond to that. More people would want to do that. And hopefully even, you know, Hollywood uh, would <laughs> think to themselves, that actually looks splendid. Why not add that to the next movie? Because it looks much more entertaining than people just bashing their heads with bars of metal, like in the atrocity that was last duel. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not even go there. I mean, I yes, I I, I interviewed uh, an expert on um, that dueling period called um, Dr. Ariella Elmer. Uh, in episode about ninety nine or a hundred, mm-hmm. and yeah, there were there were there was one or two historical inaccuracies in that film, one or two, mm-hmm. <laughs> some some slight <laughs> inaccuracies. <laughs> um, but like like okay, wouldn't it be nice if Hollywood producers afforded the same respect to historical martial arts as they often afford to Asian martial arts? Like you know, Absolutely. when Tom Cruise was training for the Last Samurai, mm-hmm. he was getting this a, a proper. Um, Koryu swordsmanship instructor mm-hmm. was coming to his house regularly and giving him lessons in how to swing a katana properly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and yeah, why why don't they do that for like but notice like the last year? It comes it comes from the love and devotion of Akira Kurosawa. Uh, because okay. he created the, the brilliant series of, of movies that stood as a monument to to the Japanese martial arts, and right. that ignited uh, West's uh, interest, mm-hmm. and that interest was later translated in how Asian martial arts are still perceived in the West. But right. we never had Hima, never had its Akira Kurosawa. We didn't have someone who was such a devoted student, someone who would so lovingly craft a representation of proper European historical martial arts into a movie. So your your short movies would be intended to inspire that future yes. historical martial arts. That's right. Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. That's a genius idea. Brilliant. Um, well, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Although I would probably, I would probably put it in an escrow account or whatever, and have it filter through so it wouldn't end up in your armor collection. Because I know what you armor people are like. <laughs> I will, I would probably find a way to explain to you that it's absolutely 
vital to the project that I get at least one armor. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again in the future. Well, when your book comes out, you're definitely coming back on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Prashemislav. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. Remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And if you want to see the moment that my knee went pear-shaped, it's there for you in the support sword people section. And of course, I would like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run the show, and without them, I would have given up a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque heart accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next time when I'll be talking to Aurelia Sedelmeyer, who is a historical fencer translator, transcriber, and is now studying the conservation of paper and books. We get very geeky about bookbinding, fancy covers, and even come up with a possible collaboration. You don't want to miss that, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. And as always, above all, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it far and wide, share it with your friends. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon. Thank you.